0: This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Let's begin. Uh, Welcome uh, to tonight's event. Uh, on uh, Global Responses to Refugees, What is the World? thinking, hosted by the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law uh, and Baker and McKenzie. Uh, As we begin, we want to acknowledge that we meet on Aboriginal land. We acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional owners on the land on which we're meeting, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present and to any Aboriginal people with us here today. And we want to also thank Baker and Mackenzie for very generously hosting us for tonight's event. My name is Frances Boone. I'm the Executive Manager of the Andrew and Renata Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales. And it's our pleasure to have you here for this evening's event. Now, we have with us two wonderful speakers who are going to talk to us uh, this evening about some of the global talks that are taking place around the challenge of uh, displacement as we're facing it today. The first is Dr. Jeff Chris, um, who I think can fairly be said to be uh, an iconic figure in uh, international refugee uh, policy. Um, Jeff was formerly the head of the policy development and evaluation service at UNHCR. He was then also the senior director of policy and advocacy at Refugees International in the US and the uh, Director of Policy and Research at the Global Commission on International Migration. He's also worked as an academic and a journalist and in the NGO sector. And he has first-hand experience of refugee situations throughout the world and has published, lectured and broadcast widely on refugee-related issues. Um, He holds a master's degree and a PhD in African Studies and Political Science from the University of Birmingham. And he is currently a research associate at the Refugee Studies Centre at the University of Oxford, an Associate Fellow at Chatham House, and an honorary professor at the School of Global Studies at the University of Sussex. And we're delighted that he can join us tonight all the way from the UK. We also have with us tonight Professor Jane McAdam. She's the Scientia Professor of Law and Director of the Andrew and Renata Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. Jane is a non-resident senior fellow in foreign policy at the Brookings Institution in Washington DC, a research associate at Oxford University's Refugee Studies Centre, and an associated senior fellow at the Fridtjof Nansen Institute in Norway. Jane publishes widely in international refugee law and forced migration with a particular focus on climate change and mobility. She is the editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Refugee Law, which is the leading journal in the field and she serves on a number of international committees, including as co-reporteur of the International Law Association's Committee on International Law and Sea Level Rise. She holds a doctorate in law from the University of Oxford and first class honours in law and history from the University of Sydney. So please join me in welcoming uh, our two panellists this evening. I uh, proceed with the um, format of tonight's debate, I would just like to say that we would like to actually dedicate this evening's event to the memory of Joe Cox. Joe's husband, Brendan, um, is a colleague of uh, Jane's um, as a World Economic for young global leader. And Jo herself was really dedicated to addressing uh, many of the issues that we'll be discussing here tonight, including addressing the root causes of displacement. And so we think it's appropriate that um, this evening's event be held in her honor. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are also um, helping to collect tributes for uh, Jo that will be sent to her family. And uh, there will be an opportunity for you to um, contribute to those at the back after the event. For tonight's event, we will have a chance to explore some of the uh, current international developments as they relate to um, the challenge of refugees and displacement that the world faces today. And uh, we will do this through um, a moderated discussion, basically, between the panelists that we have here. So the way that this evening's event will work is that we'll invite first Jeff and then Jane to provide 10 minutes of introductory remarks um, about some of this year's developments. We'll then have about half an hour of a moderated discussion amongst the panellists and we'll throw it open to questions uh, uh, from the audience. So that will be the way that we proceed and we uh, very much invite your your questions uh, and, and interaction at the end. And I would just like to note as well at the outset that tonight's event is being recorded uh, and that the recording will be made available on our website and our podcast series. So just bear that in mind um, as you're asking your question and if you're not comfortable with your question being recorded, uh, please just let us know uh, at the end. But now I would like to invite Jeff Crisp to um, speak to us about some of the developments that we've seen already this year. Jeff.
1: Thank you very much Francis and uh, thanks uh, to the Corpus Centre for the invitation to be with you this evening. It's really great to be uh, able to participate in this uh, very interesting and important event. Um, one omission in France is in that Francis omitted to say that she used to work with me in UNHCR in Geneva, and was certainly my kind of star, star staff member as soon as she joined my unit, I could sit back and take it easy there and do all the work. So, uh, a belated thanks to you for that, Francis. Um, I suppose if I like was to sum up my brief presentation in a couple of sentences, it would be something like this. Today is not a great time to come from the United Kingdom. But if there's anybody from here from Iceland, please don't let yourself be known. So it's not a great time to be British, but it's an even worse time to be a refugee, and that's what I'm going to be talking about. Uh, Those of us who work in the humanitarian sector tend to be a pretty pessimistic bunch of people. Whenever a new emergency breaks out anywhere in the world, you can almost guarantee that we will describe it as an unprecedented crisis. We constantly draw attention to the fact that humanitarian needs have never been greater, that human rights violations around the world are on the rise, and that states have decreasing levels of respect for international law and humanitarian principles. So yes, it's true, humanitarian workers such as myself are quite prone to negativity. At the same time, when I look at the situation of refugees and asylum seekers around the world today, I'm obliged to conclude that we are living through a particularly dark period, indeed one of the worst periods in the 30 years that I've worked in this particular area. So what exactly is my evidence for that very gloomy statement? Well, to begin with, let's take a quick look at the statistics. UNHCR, the UN's refugee agency where I and Francis used to work, recently announced that around 65 million people around the world are now displaced, which is the highest level of displacement in the organisation's history, and it was established in 1951. And this very high level of displacement that we see around the world today is largely the result of a spate of recent and very large-scale emergencies involving countries such as Syria, Iraq, the Central African Republic, South Sudan, Nigeria, Ukraine and Yemen. At the same time, long-standing conflicts in countries such as Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Myanmar, Somalia and Sudan have gone unresolved, making it impossible for refugees to return to their own countries. Indeed, levels of refugee repatriation are currently at an all-time low. During the 1990s, it was quite common for up to a million refugees to go home every year. At the moment, the figure is something more like 150,000. So there's been a dramatic decrease in the extent to which refugees can return to their country of origin. Further evidence of today's refugee protection crisis can be found in the policies pursued by different states around the world. Australia, of course, has played a leading role in this respect, persisting with its practice of interdiction, forced returns and offshore detention, despite the illegality and immorality of the government's approach to the refugee issue. Taking its cue from Australia in many respects, the European Union has recently entered into an agreement with Turkey, which allows refugees to be returned to that country despite the mounting armed conflict and human rights violations taking place there. Countries such as Jordan and Turkey, which were initially very generous in their response to the Syrian refugee emergency, have more recently closed their borders and have left thousands of Syrians trapped in their own country, in their own war-torn country, and unable to seek safe refuge elsewhere, elsewhere. Most recently, as you may know, Kenya in East Africa has announced its intention to close the world's largest refugee camp complex at Dadaab and to forcibly return its 350,000 residents to Somalia, a country which is still affected by intense armed conflict and at the same time an environmental and economic crisis. And just in the past couple of days, Pakistan has made a very similar announcement with respect to its very large and long-standing Afghan refugee population. Those Afghan refugees, it has said in the last couple of days, are no longer wanted or welcome in Pakistan. They will have to go home irrespective of the very difficult conditions that await them in their country of origin. So a fairly gloomy scenario in terms of the situation of refugees and asylum seekers around the world. I guess the good news in a way is that the international community has belatedly woken up to the global refugee crisis and has attempted to take some corrective action. And I just want to very quickly give you a few examples of the kind of action that states have been taking over the past few months. The European Union for example has held an almost endless series of summit meetings and launched a variety of different action plans in relation to the refugee and migration emergency taking place in the European region. In February this year, the international community came together in London in an effort to mobilize a substantial amount of additional funding for the Syrian refugee emergency. The following month, in March this year, UNHCR held a meeting in Geneva in an attempt to find additional resettlement places for Syria's refugees and to discuss the possibility of establishing safe and legal ways for people to leave Syria and to seek asylum in other states. And in May this year, just last month, the UN Secretary General convened the world's first humanitarian summit in Istanbul in Turkey, an event that was attended by more than 7,500 representatives from states, international organizations, NGOs and civil society so as you can see from that brief summary of some of the initiatives that have been taking place just in the first half of this year there has been a concerted effort on the part of the international community to come to terms with the current crisis of refugees and asylum throughout the world but unfortunately and here i'm going to demonstrate my pessimistic leanings none of those initiatives that i've just listed and described have really lived up to expectations Let me say why I come to that conclusion. In principle, for example, the London conference that I just mentioned raised more than 12 billion US dollars for Syria and neighboring states in order to improve levels of assistance given to the refugees and to those countries. But in practice, despite the fact that that um, conference took place more than four months ago, in practice only a quarter of the 12 billion dollars pledged has actually come on stream and nobody seemed to have a very clear idea of how the money is actually being used. The UNHCR conference in Geneva that I also mentioned had very modest achievements, I would suggest. Very few additional resettlement places were promised by states, and governments generally made it clear that they had very little intention of admitting additional numbers of refugees, even if those refugees were to arrive by safe, legal, and orderly means. The World Humanitarian Summit, which I also referred to a couple of minutes ago, I think made some useful progress in relation to issues such as emergency and development funding, the role of local NGOs and the use of cash assistance to people in need of aid. But the World Humanitarian Summit was conspicuously silent on the issue of refugee protection, which is arguably the most pressing issue currently on the humanitarian agenda. As for the European Union, the continent's response to its refugee and migration emergency has, I would suggest, lurched between tragedy and farce. The European Commission in Brussels has been at loggerheads with many of the EU member states. Longstanding friends and allies, such as Austria and Germany on the one hand, or Denmark and Sweden on the other, have been engaged in very bitter recriminations over the handling of the <coughs> refugee issue and have been engaging in tit for tat measures designed to shift responsibility for newly arriving refugees in the continent. And again, taking their cue, I would suggest, very directly from Australia, the European Union and NATO have decided that the best way to address the refugee issue is to launch a naval blockade that prevents persecuted people from seeking safety elsewhere. So the question I want to leave you with, and perhaps we can discuss in the course of this evening's meeting, Is there any prospect of a more principled and effective response to the global crisis of refugee protection that we are witnessing at the moment? There's still some scope for optimism, I'd suggest. In the middle of September this year, two additional Refugee Summit meetings will be held in New York. One of them convened by Ban Ki-moon, the UN Secretary General, and the other convened by President Obama. And as we head towards those two additional meetings, perhaps we collectively this evening could begin to identify the kinds of initiatives that need to be taken to ensure that refugees receive the protection which they need and to which they are entitled. And in that respect, I'm sure that Jane also has some very useful suggestions to offer to us. So with that, I'll give the floor to Jane.
0: Jeff, thank you very much for that. That's a perfect segue into where I was going to to launch my uh, comments tonight, which really are to look forward, I don't know if looking forward is (coughs) the right expression, um, but to look towards the uh, summit that the UN Secretary General will convene in September in New York, followed the next day by President Obama's own summit. Um, Last month, I think it was, the Secretary General released his report Uh, which is encouraging world leaders in September to adopt a global compact on responsibility sharing for refugees. And through the summit that he's convening, this is really the first time that the General Assembly will have brought together heads of state and government to address the question of what should countries do in relation to large movements of refugees and migrants. What's interesting here is two things. One is that it's addressing large movements, and I'll come back to that in a second. The other is that it's talking about refugees and migrants, and this is quite um, unusual to see a summit linking the two. Now, I'm not going to, in in the comments I make now, go into a lot of detail about that, other than to say it's controversial to do that. There are some good reasons for perhaps highlighting some of the uh, commonalities, but there are also some dangers in, um, in, in talking about both in the same breath. And while I think some of the nuance does find its way into the report, it is still a matter to be very cautious about in terms of the, the responses that might come out. What the Secretary General has said is that we don't actually need new lists of recommendations and to quote him he said, what is urgently needed instead is mobilisation of the political will and resources to implement what the international community has already decided in the UN General Assembly and other international fora." In other words, the building blocks for for effective responses to people on the move are already out there. Um, The longer we think about it and look for new ideas, of course there will be some, um, some innovative responses that come forward but I think by and large we pretty much know what it is that needs to happen in order to protect the very large numbers of refugees and other displaced people uh, on the move as well as those of course who are displaced within their own countries. Um, Just before I go on I mentioned that this meeting is to address large movements of people And I think it's important to bear in mind that the numerical component of what is large is not defined. And in fact, what the report says is that it depends less on the absolute number of people moving than it does on the receiving country's capacity to respond and the impact of that influx of people on that country, whether that be on its refugee determination procedures where they exist or the impact on society and infrastructure. Uh, And I think That in itself um, is interesting to think about in terms of when states themselves might decide they are facing a large influx of people as opposed to something that's more manageable. So the overarching goals of the September meeting are stated as follows. First of all, to strengthen and implement existing frameworks and to develop innovative ways to address large movements of people. Secondly, to govern national borders effectively while protecting the human rights of all refugees and migrants, thirdly to address the causes of displacement and irregular migration, fourthly to develop mechanisms to respond to future large movements of people more effectively and predictably, and finally to acknowledge and strengthen the contributions that refugees and migrants make to host communities. Quite clearly, unilateral responses by individual countries, such as stopping boats or building walls, are part of the problem, not the solution. They serve to divert movement elsewhere, to undermine basic principles of human dignity and protection, and to foster hostility rather than hospitality for those on the move. The Secretary General's report reiterates the clear rule of international law that asylum seekers should not be penalised for arriving without passports or visas. In terms of the particular instrument that the Secretary General wants to come out of the meeting, the so-called Global Compact on Responsibility Sharing for Refugees, this would be based on a number of core elements. He said that it would need to ensure, firstly, that asylum seekers are given access to territory and to fair and efficient refugee status determination procedures. People who are found to have a protection need must be granted a legal status that accords with countries' obligations in international refugee and human rights law. Aid and assistance have to be effectively and efficiently distributed. There should be better coordination between the so-called emergency humanitarian response uh, mechanisms and the perceived to be longer-term development um, mechanisms and and sectors, recognising that many displacement situations are prolonged and so the long-term needs of refugees need to be taken into account early on to reduce reliance on humanitarian aid and to promote resilience and self-sufficiency. Governments should diversify and expand the bases for admission, going beyond the sort of traditional idea of resettlement to things like um, medical evacuation schemes, humanitarian admission schemes, opening up skilled migration visas to refugees in a more targeted way, um, education, better utilising family reunion. And underscoring all of this must be respect for human rights law and human dignity. So the Secretary-General's concrete forward-looking agenda does provide us with both a roadmap and a plan for action as well as a tool for accountability. The question though is whether or not the things that he wants will actually be achieved. And before I go on to a little more analysis of, of whether that's likely, it might be worth noting what President Obama is trying to get out of his meeting, which will be the following day, Um, His meeting is called the Summit on the Global Refugee Crisis. It's not focusing on migration, it's just on refugee challenges. And it's co-hosted by the governments of Canada, Ethiopia, Germany, Jordan, Mexico, Sweden, as well as the UN Secretary-General. What that meeting wants to achieve is the following. Firstly, significant new humanitarian funding commitments. He's looking for at least a 30% increase in financing for global appeals and international humanitarian organisations. So what that means in real terms is getting at least 10 additional states to commit to providing regular contributions to the UN. Um, that's looking for an increase in global funding of uh, from $10 billion to $13 billion. Next step is that Obama wants to see a doubling of countries resettlement and other channels for admission, you know, resettlement places and or other um, admission pathways including in countries that haven't traditionally engaged with resettlement. They're also looking to increase the number of refugees who attend school by um, a million and increase the number of refugees who are granted the right to work also by a million. Uh, They say that and I quote, reaching these ambitious objectives will be challenging yet the level of need demands no less and the United States has long been a humanitarian leader. Now, of course, the backdrop of this, too, is that Obama has not yet managed to resettle the 10,000 Syrian refugees that he pledged. So while the US may be perceived or may perceive itself as a humanitarian leader, and certainly on resettlement, it always has been the country that's taken the largest number of refugees, there are a lot of political pressures that um, will obviously, you know, shape part of that meeting um, if the US itself is not seen as... Um, ramping up its own contributions. Now governments could do all of this and a lot more right now. We don't actually need to have summits to create the possibility to um, give more money, to provide more resettlement places, to allow refugees to work. But of course what we do know is that very often A crisis or a sense of crisis we can debate whether what we're seeing is a refugee crisis but whether a sense of crisis can actually mobilize the political will that doesn't otherwise exist. I have to say drawing on what Jeff said about people in this area often being pessimists I'm not overly optimistic that uh, we're going to see massive global changes of approach in September I think we seem to be uh, watching a game of chicken playing out at the international level. We've seen the few European countries that have gone all out finding themselves rather isolated, not being assisted with um, comparable contributions by their neighbours. We are seeing frontline states increasingly struggling with large numbers of refugees who've been there now for many, many years. Um, They were originally quite um, willing to host people but are finding that their own resources are drying up and not being um, assisted sufficiently by the rest of the international community. So insufficient resources are a big problem. Um, There are very limited protection pathways. Refugees are understandably voting with their feet. So I think what we're seeing at the moment is certainly a humanitarian crisis coupled with a political crisis, namely the lack of political will to implement the strategies that we know will make a huge difference. Now I don't actually think we're facing an insurmountable challenge. The underlying causes of displacement are certainly complex, but many of the answers are pretty simple. And as one senior UN official said very recently, the system's not broken, the system is just (coughs) broke. So money, is going to be one of the big contributions. Um, but as Geoff said, you need to have the channels to distribute that money effectively. Without those, it's uh, you know it's not going to reach the people who, who need it. Um, resourcing frontline states and recognising the work that they are doing is, is very important, but that can't go on forever without more help. Um, obviously, resettling refugees plays a huge role, but we need to go beyond that with some of the more... Um, Uh, Other strategies I mentioned, humanitarian visas that can allow people to get on planes to travel and seek asylum rather than being forced to take dangerous uh, journeys by boat or over land, other humanitarian pathways for for admission, Um, sponsorship schemes to enable people to access education, Um, all sorts of other things, opening up existing labour migration possibilities by giving preference to refugees, this sort of thing could happen right now if only governments wanted it to. We also need to have a much more holistic approach than we currently have that's at the national level joining up different government departments but of course also at the international level we might talk about some of that in, in questions it's been alluded to the, the role of development actors versus humanitarian actors. Um, we also I think have a, a big question globally of framing how are refugees perceived? How do we get away from um, a lot of the fear-mongering that exists by discussing the issue in an honest and responsible way and recognising the great contributions that refugees have made historically and continue to make today, whether that be intellectually, socially, culturally or economically. All of this, of course, course, points to the need of why, why we need more international cooperation. And I think when we do consider the scale of displacement in a global context, Um, while it's large and while it's challenging, it is something that can be addressed uh, far better than than we're addressing it now. And that will only happen if we approach the issue collectively rather than each nation thinking it can um, either solve this through unilateral responses or alternatively shift people away from um, their, their own borders, which, of course, if you carry that right through means that ultimately people will be blocked from ever seeking sanctuary and protection in the first place. Thank you. Well thank you very much to both Jeff and Jane for sharing your initial thoughts despite the fact that they uh, appear to be rather gloomy. Perhaps we can try to elucidate some potential glimmers of hope um, and uh, perhaps some uh, areas where there might be avenues to move forward um, on some of uh, some of these issues. Um, I mean one question I suppose, is around um, you know th- there seems to be uh, an acknowledgement that international cooperation, must be a part of, of how we move forward uh, in responding to you know an unprecedented level of, of global displacement and yet there is this sort of um, as Jane described it game of chicken um, where you know there is a lack of political will to move things forward what would uh, you see as being you know some concrete steps that can be taken towards Meaningful international cooperation, and what do you think would be some measures that um, that we can that we can look to uh, in that regard, Jeff? If you'd like to give us <coughs> off.
1: Yeah Yeah, um, let me. Be, is that oh, that's let me uh, begin. But yeah, <laughs> let me begin by saying. Um, Humanitarians are not only kind of inveterate pessimists, but they're also people who don't know very much about history. And, um, I, you know, I think one of the problems at the moment, we've got very much caught up on the idea that we're currently experiencing the biggest refugee crisis the world has ever seen, and we we're kind of a little bit fixated on that, and almost paralysed by that. And I think if you go back in history, you can, you can actually find very large-scale refugee movements. Uh, the Indo-Chinese in the 1970s and 80s, Central America in the 1980s, Southern Africa in the 80s and 90s, most recently perhaps the Balkans in the 90s and early 2000s. These were all massive refugee crises involving millions of people uprooted, displaced, forced to seek refuge elsewhere, and yet we did manage to find solutions for them. So I think one of my kind of recommendations is not to be too paralyzed by the extent and the scale of what's happening at the moment, but actually look back at history and say, how do we manage to resolve those refugee problems. So perhaps there are some lessons of history which actually make us a little bit more optimistic rather than the pessimism that that I've just described. I think the other thing in terms of addressing the current situation is there's a kind of desperate search for new ideas. And I was at a meeting last week and the first question I was asked was, well, what would you, you know, have you got one new idea that you would bring to the table that could resolve the current refugee crisis? And I was completely stunned by that question, so I don't know he's gonna ask me tonight. Um, and the only kind of answer I could give, and I, I think I actually stand by the answer that I gave, and I'll repeat here's is, I'm not sure there are any big new ideas out there. There's some certain kind of adaptations and Jane has already mentioned some of the ideas in the Secretary General's report, but I think the fundamental principles on which refugee protection are based, on which the refugee regime has been based, are absolutely valid today, and it's their effective implementation that's important. So, you know, the principle that everybody under the universal declaration of human rights has the right to seek and enjoy asylum in another, another state, you know, must be respected, the idea of principle of what we call non refoulement the idea that people shouldn't be sent back to a country where their life or liberty at risk is still a valid principle and should be respected and that's particularly pertinent with respect to what I said about Kenya and, um, and Pakistan earlier on. The idea that when refugees go back to their own country it should be on a totally voluntary and safe basis, again, a complete valid principle. And then, as you've just said, the whole idea of international cooperation and responsibility sharing, the fact that states just because they happen to be located next door to a country where something very bad is happening, of course that's the case for Lebanon, for Jordan, for uh, Iraq, Egypt and Turkey at the moment, they shouldn't be left alone to deal with that crisis by themselves. And that the whole approach developed at the end of the Second World War to the refugee problems was that this is a common responsibility and a shared responsibility and I think rather than any new ideas, we have to put that idea firmly back on the table and say what does it actually mean in practice? Now, of course, different states can offer different things. What Lebanon can do to resolve the current refugee crisis is very different to what Australia or the United Kingdom can do. But it's a mixture of things. It's a mixture of providing funding and a mixture of providing resettlement places. To some extent, uh, refugee hosting companies allowing the local integration of refugees so they can find a solution in the country to which they've fled. So I think you know, there are common responsibilities different responsibilities. And we have to really look at how different states and different actors within the international community can make the most effective contribution to the resolution of the situation that we are currently faced with today.
0: Um, To be boring, I would echo what he said, Um, but just to add a little bit more, I mean in terms of the history, it's really interesting to reflect on what you were alluding to, some of the earlier contexts where we had very large numbers of people displaced, and if we look in Australian terms back to 1949, 1950, 48% of the people we took in that year were refugees. And that compares to today, 3% of our annual permanent migration comprises resettled refugees. Vast difference. And think of the kind of composition of Australia in terms of demography at that time, ethnicity. This was, you know, white Australia. Um, it was, at the time, it was seen as, as, you know, not necessarily a great thing that we were taking in displaced people from, from Europe, but we needed the labour force. And I think today people look back on that as a great success story by and large. If you move forward to the late 70s, um, Vietnam, the, the you know the first wave of, of boat people, a, a term that the Vietnamese boat people generally claim, which is why I'm using it here. Um, 25% of our immigration intake in 78, 79 were refugees. Again, much higher than now. That was the period when um, We had Martin Fraser showing a lot of political leadership, again with a community that was fairly hostile to people coming in from Asia. This was at the point where the White Australia policy still had not been completely dismantled. Now, I would argue that that's, um, in the Australian context, a a very different situation from where we're at today. Um, So I think if we think, oh, it's all a bit tricky now, look back on those earlier periods to say, well, actually, Um, Australia is a far more multicultural society than it was at that time. We've resettled much bigger numbers of refugees. Why can't we take more? Now, I'm not saying we take the full one million that the UNHCR says need resettlement. On the other hand, if we think about it, we probably have a million at least expats out of Australia at any one time. Again, I'm not making that link to say so we take a million, but I think we can certainly do a lot more than we're doing now. The other point I'd make is that states themselves constantly reiterate the principle of international responsibility, of international cooperation, um, burden sharing, not a very nice term but it's the one that's used in the refugee context. Um, But it's never clear exactly how they think that's going to happen unless they all pull their weight and and do something. And so instead what you see is a lot of responsibility shifting um, through practice if not rhetoric. Um, I think too though, we can also, you know, if you want to look more practically at how can we make this stuff happen, going right down to the local level and to the community level, the level of cities, there is a lot that those sorts of governance levels can do in terms of making places welcoming for refugees, of making sure that people have access to um, basic resources. I'm thinking now in the context of um, a receiving country like Australia. In the US, there's an NGO called Welcoming America that has demonstrated, through a lot of evidence, just how successful communities become that welcome refugees. They actually become more prosperous on the whole. Um, Various measures show that they they do very well. And in fact, there's now competition among American cities to become designated welcoming cities. some scholars at Bookings recently um, wrote, and if I can just quote what they said, they said, um, "Nation states govern in the realm of abstraction. They enact legislation, promulgate rules, and occasionally develop programs from the top down in ways that must satisfy the, di- the di- sorry the diverse ideologies of disparate political parties. Cities, by contrast, must operate at the level of the practical and are critical to helping nations achieve their big picture goals." Solutions can be captured and codified for other cities to adapt. So again, it's another strategy, it's not the whole strategy, but I think it's an important one to think about. Um, and of course, then finally we may discuss this, um, the role of regional strategies. There's um, you know, a lot of discussion in this context as to what that might look like. We've seen some failure of that in the European context, um, but it goes back to Jeff's point about different countries, different regions having different challenges and things that they can do and contributions they can make. So I think international cooperation needs to be understood perhaps more broadly than we tend to think about it.
1: Can I um, just follow up on that? I, mean, I was talking to Francis before we started and I said I wasn't going to say anything about Australia because Jane's the expert and I'm the outsider but as, as you've mentioned Australia, I'm, I'm going to give it a very quick kind of outsider's perspective the situation, not that I'm an expert on on, on, on talk, but I did talk I tried to follow it as closely as possible. And I think there's three things that have really surprised us for those of us who live in other parts of the world about uh, the developments uh, the, in recent years in Australia. One is you know, the, the reaction to the numbers. I mean, I know the numbers were significantly higher two or three years ago than they are now, people arriving particularly by boats, But by global standards, the numbers were always relatively modest. And the extent of the reaction. Uh, against the arrival of asylum seekers given that the numbers were so modest was something very very difficult for those of us living outside of australia to understand It simply seemed to be a completely disproportionate response to that situation if anybody can explain to me either now or after the meeting as to why the reaction was so was so um, aggressive um, then i would be very interested to no? know because i don't think i actually understand why the reaction has been at Secondly, I mean, Australia is by no means the only country to try and prevent and, uh, and obstruct the arrival of asylum seekers throughout the world, I mean, all of the European states have tried it, many other industrialised and developing countries have tried it. Uh, the precise means that uh, Australia has chosen to obstruct and <coughs> the arrival of asylum seekers, and again, that's something that has quite shocked us for um, not living in this part of the world. You know, the detention centres on, on, on Manus Island and Nauru, for example, being the prime example. And I noticed, uh, again, in the papers this morning, that Mr Turnbull said that these were purely the responsibility of the respective governments and they had nothing to do with Australia, which is a bit of a difficult one to take on. Um, but again, you know, why exactly did Australia go down this path of such aggressive um, measures to try and obstruct and deter the arrival of asylum because for those of us living outside it's quite a difficult thing to understand and then thirdly um, i've got to be careful how i put this i mean i think australia had a very high humanitarian reputation and in certain respects it continues to have that reputation not least in your refugee resettlement program which is still one of the largest and most effective in the world and recent studies have shown that refugees, as Jane has just said, have contributed substantially to the Australian economy, society and culture over the years. Um, so you still retain that high reputation in some respects, but in other respects, particularly the measures used against the arrival of, uh, of people by boat, really the country has sacrificed its reputation. And we, again, from outside, we find that very difficult to understand. In an era where we're often talking about soft power rather than hard power, many of us feel that Australia has sacrificed some of the soft power influence that it had in the world as a result of the way it's treated refugees and asylum seekers.
0: Thanks, Steph. Well, I mean, in light of the fact that, you know, we do have you know, a proliferation of these sort of deterrent measures that we're seeing Australia, but also Europe and, and other countries increasingly engaging in. Where is the impetus then for you know improved responsibility sharing going to come from? And is some of the problem that you know responsibility sharing um, can mean many different things to different to different people. So from the perspective of say an industrialized country that may not receive very many um, refugee asylum seekers, you know, directly entering its territory, uh, improved responsibility sharing may mean. Um, increased humanitarian assistance or increased development assistance and that's it. Whereas perhaps from the perspective of um, a frontline state that's hosting many millions of of refugees, increased responsibility sharing may mean massively increased um, resettlement, for example. And is that part of the problem? And if so, what can help to overcome those sorts of impasses? I think it absolutely is part of the problem. I mean having recently gone through a lot of debates within UNHCR's um, various committees where states meet and kind of you know, there are records of what they say. Virtually every state will get up and say how important international cooperation is but then they, they describe it, either they don't describe it all what they mean they just sort of say it or some governments will actually say for us that just means a financial commitment um, I mean the, the classic country there is Japan Japan doesn 't see itself as a country that hosts refugees they had i 'm not quite sure where it 's at now, but they did have a very very small pilot program I think where they resettled fourteen refugees um, it 's a start <laughs> um, but you know that's japan 's view that we'll give money, but that's all um, other other states don 't even have a choice about whether they give money, what they do. They they literally have millions of people crossing the border. Lebanon, 25% of the population now are refugees. Um, I think one thing that's important to bear in mind is the Refugee Convention, while we often talk about it in terms of the rights accorded to refugees, as a legal document, when a country signs up to it, they are expressing their promise in relation to all the other countries that have signed up to it. So the the treaty obligations are actually ones that countries undertake and promises they make with respect to each other. So, in fact, when a country starts to ignore the obligations in that treaty, they are breaking the very concept of international cooperation that underpins what that document is in part designed to do. That said, the Refugee Convention, I mean, very often that's where the blame is, is put. Obviously the refugee, you know, this is the argument, obviously we've got um, all these millions of refugees, therefore the Refugee Convention must be terrible and useless and let's throw it out. Why would you throw away the one document you've got that actually sets up a principled approach to at least trying to manage um, part of, of the phenomenon? On the other hand, the Refugee Convention was never designed as a document that allocated responsibility in any particular way. Its official name is the Convention Relating to the Status of Refugees, and that's exactly what it does. It sets out the legal status that governments that sign up to the treaty are required to accord to refugees. Um, Interestingly, when uh, when UNHCR was founded and when that document was um, adopted, it was envisaged that probably UNHCR would only need to exist for three years. UNHCR's mandate was renewed for three years at a time until the early was it the late 90s or the early 2000s I think when it was finally recognised that this would be a 2003 a long standing you know permanent problem. Um, but I think perhaps there's a there's been a little bit of head in the sand that's um, perhaps been there from from the start. Maybe it's the opposite of the pessimism that Jeff <laughs> mentioned, and it was this blind optimism that somehow we'd resolve things at the same time, though, that that instrument was looking at a very specific situation, which was refugees who'd been displaced by the events of the Second World War. So in that sense, too, it wasn't envisaged as a document that would have uh, necessarily a long-term shelf life to try and regulate future displacement in the way that I think sometimes it's talked about today.
1: Thanks. Um, I'm going to drag my family into this discussion. Um, not so long ago, my younger son came to me and said, Dad, how do you make states do what they're supposed to do? And it was kind of a naive question, but it was actually got me thinking, how do you make states do what they're supposed to do? And, and I, I came up with one three answers, and I'm not sure whether they're the best answers or not, but let me go through them very quickly. I mean, um, the first one is, as Jane has just described you know states have taken on obligations freely. You know sometimes states talk about the 1951 Refugee Convention as it's been invented by Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch. It was a, it was a, it was the creation of states who wanted to have a concerted, coherent, predictable way of addressing refugee issues, and therefore came up with that particular instrument. So I think we can uh, try to ensure that states, whether it's Australia or states anywhere else in the world, respect the obligations which they have freely taken on. Uh, of their own choice. So obligation I think is the first point. Secondly there's clearly an issue of morality and values and we shouldn't forget that one of the principal inspirations um, and motivations for the 1951 Refugee Convention was a determination on the part of the international community to prevent the what happened to victims of the Holocaust before and during the Second World War where people simply weren't able to escape and find safe refuge in other countries, and. Uh, it was very much based on that value that persecuted people have the right to be protected. So I think we can make arguments on the basis of morality and values. And then thirdly, I think we can try and convince states that it's in their self-interest to adhere to the various conventions and the various principles that they've freely taken on themselves and show that it is in their best interest to promote the principles of international cooperation, international solidarity, responsibility sharing. It's in their interest to have refugee situations resolved as quickly as possible and not allow them to fester for many years with many adverse consequences now that brings up one slightly tricky problem something that came up in a meeting that Jane and I attended in Canberra yesterday which is the whole question of security as somebody said at the meeting we were attending yesterday if you want to get attention to refugee issues just frame it as a security issue and states will come running because that's what they're really concerned about at the moment and As a tactic that might be worth considering. At the same time, it's a very dangerous tactic to frame the refugee problem as a security threat because, in that respect, it would simply reinforce the idea that refugees are people to be kept out and obstructed and um, and, 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 as an excuse for not um, observing the principles of international cooperation and responsibility. So, I think, uh, and this was. Uh, a tactic that the previous High Commissioner, Mr Antonio Guterres, who retired at the end of the last year, he was always using the notion of self-interest, but not the notion of security. And I think that's the third element of my answer to my son's very interesting question.
0: Well, that sort of brings us um, to one of the issues that might be motivating some of the interest at, at the global level at the moment, and that is the whole issue of irregular migration and state sort of frenzy around that um, and perhaps we could return to that question that, that Jane touched on before around the fact that these two global compacts are side by side, one dealing with responsibility sharing for refugees and another dealing with migration and, and Jane did um, sort of issue a note of caution around that. So I wondered if you'd like to elaborate a little bit on um, what some of the opportunities might be in, in putting those some of those two things side by side but also uh, some of the things that perhaps we need to be careful about. Well, I think if I can bring this to another area of my work, which is um, mobility in the context of climate change and disasters. Um, This is something that, again, there have been concerted international efforts on in in recent years to look at what are the drivers of movement and what are some of of the ways in which we can hopefully avoid people being displaced by disasters or the impacts of climate change, but recognising that there will be some displacement, how can we create um, Safer pathways for people to move, and I guess some—I mean—some of that thinking actually is mentioned specifically in in the report. It's been fed in there to note that there are people who may be on the move, who are in or find themselves in vulnerable situations, who um, may not have a legal entitlement to enter another country, but nonetheless are in a precarious position and and, you know their needs need to be addressed in some way. So in the context of climate change and disasters some of what we've been looking at is to say all right how do you make communities themselves safer to begin with disaster risk reduction climate change adaptation measures how do you build um, you know enforce building codes ensure that houses aren't being built on very dangerous sort of you know bits of land that are about to fall off into the ocean um, or you know riverbanks collapsing and the like. Then how do you create um, whether they be temporary humanitarian measures to admit people after a disaster, or longer term measures to enable people to uh, move on a more permanent basis? And then how do you create voluntary migration opportunities so that people who know, for instance, in a small Pacific island, we're living in a risky environment that in the longer term may become uninhabitable at some future point might I be able to apply for a skilled visa to go and work in New Zealand or in Australia? How do we build up those mechanisms so that people actually with their own agency can have a self-help measure that's there um, rather than waiting and waiting and waiting till they find themselves in a dire humanitarian situation and need you know, the emergency response to come in? So for, sort of reflecting on all of that, that's partly why um, the the rights of vulnerable migrants have found their way into the report and the, or the needs of vulnerable migrants. Um, but one of the, the issues here is that we don't have a definition in law of, of what a migrant is, let alone a vulnerable migrant. The International Organization for Migration has a definition that they use as a, as a working definition. Obviously, countries have human rights obligations towards anybody in their territory or jurisdiction, that includes migrants. But as we've been talking about, they have very specific obligations in relation to refugees. And if you start blurring the categories, then the risk is that refugees are just seen as part of that bigger group of people and may may not be accorded the very special kind of protection that they need for very special reasons. So I think there there are some interesting overlaps between some of the drivers of movement. Um, Jeff might want to talk a little bit about mixed migration movements as well but I would I think there are very important legal distinctions that we mustn't um, paper over and I'm not saying the report necessarily does that but I think when it comes to what are the global compacts we develop and how do states go on to address this that we need to be absolutely cognizant of of what the the obligations and responsibilities are.
1: I hesitate to say anything about migration with Professor Stephen Cosell sitting in the front row because he knows far more about the subject than I do. So uh, let me say something from maybe a kind of the UNHCR perspective I over so with it for many years and was dealing with this issue. You know, I think for many years, the issue of migration wasn't really on the UNHCR agenda. It had a very black and white approach to the issue. Refugees were pe- people escaping from persecution and they needed to be protected. Migrants were moving essentially for economic reasons and normally speaking, didn't have serious protection problems. And if they did, it wasn't UNHCR, UNHCR's responsibility to to address those problems. So for for many, many years, UNHCR was able to function with that kind of fairly binary model, refugees on the one hand, economic migrants on the other. And I think from the, it's difficult to date, but probably from the early 1990s onwards, for a variety of different reasons, um, that became a more difficult distinction to sustain. And things became uh, increasingly complex we started talking about composite movements of refugees and migrants, then we moved to this notion of mixed migratory movements, which is still very much a concept which is in in vogue today. Basically it means, at the very simplest level, that in a migratory movement or a movement of people moving along the same routes, using the same means of transport, often using the services of the same human smugglers, you would find people with very different motivations for moving. Uh, So if you take, for example, a typical boat uh, of people moving either from uh, Turkey to Greece across the Aegean or from Libya across the Mediterranean to Italy, you might find an Eritrean escaping conscription in their own country, a Somali escaping from the war in their own country a Nigerian who simply can't find a decent livelihood in their own country, a Gambian who's who's worried about the human rights situation in their own country. And when you get that kind of mixture on the one hand it's very difficult to say exactly who is a refugee and who's not because they all have protection concerns. And secondly, in very practical and operational terms, if you're an organisation which is rescuing people at sea, you don't stop the boat and ask Mm -hmm. why exactly are you moving the first you know, the first impulse must be to rescue those people and to worry about their legal status afterwards. So I think this is a really, really, really kind of difficult problem for UNHCR and I see various documents coming out of the organisation which are not absolutely consistent. On the one hand, there's a recognition that population movements can be increasingly mixed. At the same time, as UNHCR with a very clear and specific protection mandate, as guardian of the Refugee Convention, it wants At the same time, to make this clear distinction between refugees on the one hand and migrants on the other. I think where we've kind of generally progressed is to realise that refugees are not the only people with protection needs. And even if it's not UNHCR that is meeting the protection needs of so called economic migrants, then somebody has an obligation to do that. So I think we've made progress in that respect. And then finally, I think the whole current Syrian situation, the movement of Syrians from uh, Turkey to Greece and other parts of Europe, has really. Uh, added on a new dimension to this discussion because clearly the movement of Syrians from Syria into Turkey for example nobody I think would dispute the fact that's a refugee movement, people have very direct, uh, clear threats to their life and liberty because of the war in Syria, but how do you characterise the ultimate movement from Turkey um, (coughs) to Greece and other parts of Europe? Um, It's clearly not in most cases at least directly because of conflict or persecution, it's usually because of lack of livelihoods, lack of uh, ability to work, lack of access to education for their children, and simply a feeling that there's not a future for them in a country like Turkey, that the only way they can develop a real life for themselves in the future is by moving on on onto Europe. And so actually characterizing that movement, not not the movement from Syria to Turkey, but from Turkey onwards into Europe has been quite a tricky one, and I'm not quite sure we've actually managed to conceptualize that movement in a very adequate way yet.
0: Thanks very much. Well, we might um, throw it open for a time of uh, questions from the audience. Um, We'll gather up a a few questions at once and then um, then hand them over to our panel. Uh, Just a reminder that um, this evening's event is being recorded, so um, please bear that in mind when you ask your question. And um, if you would like your question not to be included in the recording, if you could let us know afterwards. But we have a rolling mic, uh, so if you could indicate if you'd like to ask a question. I have a question about the past examples of refugee crises that you gave which had been successfully resolved and seemingly without the same degree of paralysis that we seem to find amongst the international community today. I'd be interested in your thoughts on what are the missing ingredients that were present at those times that don't seem to be present today to allow the same thing to happen.
2: Um, I I like very much what you both said, but I think there is Something missing, and I think, you know, in a way where one could sum it up unkindly as saying, "We've been here before, and we found solutions in the past. And if only states would meet their commitments, we'd be all right." I really think we need to ask whether something new is happening in the world, and I, I mean, you know, and whether the states we expect to 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 respond to refugee flows are actually doing more to create them than to respond to them, because. I mean, Syria is is complex, but nearly all the other major refugee situations we're dealing with at the moment have been countries where there have been Western interventions which have not led to resolution. Um, There there are new factors like the ease of communication and transport. I mean, when one sees the Syrian refugees using their mobile phones to explore their ways forward, that is a really new factor. I think I mean I don't want to go on for too long, but um, clearly, what's in my view, what's happening is that we have a coincidence of factors: growing violence, growing inequality, increasing ease of transport and communications, and increasing unwillingness of states to meet the commitments that they have given through international instruments, and. I don't think these, these are things that are, are part of a, a wave of you know, what, uh, the, the emergencies that have been in the past that have been resolved. I really feel that we're moving into a new phase and that we need to recognise that and think, how are we going to respond to that?
0: This might be um, a good time to, to throw back to the panel, actually, and perhaps consider the two questions together is there uh, is there something new in in the displacement challenges and the the mobility that we're seeing today and are there lessons that we can learn from our historical experience that can inform how we respond to the current situation?
1: In in response to the first question I I think looking back at some of those previous major refugee emergencies that I mentioned briefly um, a few minutes ago, I think there was a similar kind of sense of paralysis. You know, when people were leaving Vietnam in large numbers by boat, there seemed to be no end to that problem. I remember in the 1980s when there were 800,000 Mozambican refugees in Malawi and 1.6 million Mozambican refugees throughout the whole of Southern Africa. Nobody could envisage a solution to that coming. It seemed to be a kind of perpetual uh, situation that would go on. Even during the Balkans in the 1990s, you know, the scale of displacement and destruction had been so great uh, until the Dayton Conference came along, none of us could really envisage that situation being resolved. And I think mentioning the Dayton Conference is actually quite personal in that respect because I think what it shows, and all of those previous emergencies that I mentioned, uh, including Central America, which was the other one I mentioned, ultimately, they were resolved by political action, not humanitarian action. And, and one of the things I get a little bit disturbed about is when I see my kind of so-called fellow humanitarians saying, how do we unlock this protracted refugee situation? I don't think humanitarians have ever unlocked any protracted refugee situation. The action has to be taken at the political level, and then humanitarian organizations like UNHCR can take advantage of the openings that political changes provide. But I don't believe that humanitarian agencies, other than through advocacy and encouraging, uh, states and other actors to become more engaged can, can can really unlock a protracted refugee situation. So, I mean, I think to link uh, again to what um, Stephen was saying, I mean, one of the kind of new factors compared, if you compare those previous crises to what we've got now at the global level, particularly in Syria, is the complete lack of any kind of global governance structure that can bring peace to Syria and to other countries which are at war. Uh, so, whereas you've got, you know, The United Nations Security Council established at the end of the Second World War with specific responsibility to maintain international peace and security. Now you have a situation in Syria and Iraq where four of the five permanent members are actively engaged in the conflict Mm -hmm. and don't really seem to have uh, much of a motivation uh, collectively to do anything about it, but they're prepared, they're prepared to live with the consequences. And as Mr Kateros con- said constantly before he left office, to leave the humanitarians to pick up the pieces. So I certainly agree with um, Stephen. We are met- entering a new era. i certainly take on board the various factors he mentioned, and I will also emphasise the fact that we don't have a satisfactory global governance or international peace and security mechanism at the moment.
0: Yeah, I don't have, I don't have a lot. More to add to that, I mean I think you know you're quite right we're seeing increased polarisation in terms of um, you know individual political leanings, if that makes sense. I mean we've, we've got this sort of sense of loss of space in the middle and increasingly um, vocal voices from either end. Um, I guess you know that growing polarisation then it also makes it very hard perhaps for political leaders to reclaim that uh, evidence base in the middle and to really get through with, um, with some of the more rational, evidence-based um, you know, information that's there. I think, you know, perhaps that's also one of the things that we have all thought that if you if you tell people what the facts are enough and in a, a rational, measured, sensible way, then the light bulb moment will occur and everyone will say, oh goodness, what are we doing? In fact, I think what a lot of the research tells us is that so much is emotional, is underpinned by values. And when you push particular levers that engage particular values, then people will react in certain ways. Now, you know, maybe that's also part of the um, you were talking about the ease of communication among refugees, but I think also with with social media and the ease of communication that we all have today, that can be used for both positive and uh, less positive ends. I mean, on the positive side, we've seen all sorts of interesting, innovative ideas happen. So LinkedIn being used to connect refugees in Sweden with job openings or other technology platforms being used to create internships in, in business and partnerships for for refugees, Um, you know, rooms for refugees, Airbnb, people saying can we let out our um, homes to refugees. There's a lot of stuff that I think the um, social entrepreneurs are very interested in and are are building upon. Also the role of the private sector that perhaps um, hasn't been tapped into as much as it could be. But Stephen, I think your underlying point is, is, is right, that there is something different here. So how do we building on everything we know how do we then leverage those kind of new innovations that we might have to try and bring more positive change rather than um you know something more negative just on lucy's question i mean i think um the absence of strong political leadership is is one of the biggest challenges there um one kind of movement i didn't i don't think you mentioned it i didn't mention it was the balkans in in the 90s and i think you know europe at that time witnessed a large influx of refugees which i think people looking back today would say well overall people were well integrated um it's it's overall been a success story but certainly at the time no one was describing it in that way interestingly after that and this is what i find so um strange is after uh, that's not strange after that the EU adopted what's called the Temporary Protection Directive, basically to create a mechanism so that if they were ever faced again with a large influx of people, they could very quickly have a, a way to provide protection, to provide um, certain standards, and that would be an EU-wide, um, you know, protection measure. What the thing I find odd is that that was never invoked in the Syrian context. Um, partly people, you know, I've heard all sorts of different explanations. Some people say, well, there just wasn't the political will, once again, to do it. But one of the um, explanations I've heard is that, well it depends on having overwhelmed um, reception conditions and overwhelmed um, refugee status determination systems, and in fact the systems weren't necessarily overwhelmed. And that's very telling, if that's, if that's the real reason, then I think there's um, even more case for despair with what we've now seen happen in Europe over the last um, year or two.
1: Maybe in terms of what's new and to link uh, to something Sir Stephen said about mobility and kind of connectedness of people these days, I mean, one of the things which is actually quite new in the refugee scenario is the fact that far fewer refugees live in refugee camps today than they did in the past. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of refugees now live in urban areas and outside of camps. And this is a very significant development. Um, And I think it's part of an ongoing it's not confined uh, to refugees. Refugees are part of a broader movement of people from rural areas to cities. There was a time in the 70s and 80s. You stuck refugees in camps. You provided them with basic levels of assistance. You, set, you, you got them to sit there. You didn't allow them to move outside of camps. And when things got better back home, you told them, now it's time to repatriate. And really, refugees have taken things much more into their own hands, I think, over the past 15 years. The movement of refugees out of camps into urban areas or people avoiding camps altogether because conditions of there are ghastly and dreadful, and there are actually more opportunities available in urban areas. I think that's been a really major uh, development. And uh, we see that particularly in, in, the, in the context of the Syrian refugee emergency, where 85% of the Syrian refugees in neighbouring countries are living outside of camps. Some countries like Lebanon, for example, doesn't have any camps uh, whatsoever. And this has really obliged the humanitarian community in general, but also UNHCR in particular, to have to really rethink the way it goes about this business. There are some particular challenges. uh, Camps are dreadful and ghastly, but they're relatively easy to manage in certain ways. When refugees moving to the city are scattered around a very large urban area, then that poses quite a lot of new challenges for humanitarian organizations like UNHCR. and that's certainly a new feature that has come uh, on stream over the last 10 to 15 years. Hi, um, question to Jane. Um, given the overwhelming consensus that climate change is a real issue and a push factor
0: for people leaving their countries, particularly in Syria, do you think it's time to Revised the definition of refugee in the 1951 Convention to explicitly include climate change as a factor that can contribute to refugees moving. Um, you mentioned briefly before the private sector um, has been underutilised, um, and as actually from one of those organisations that you mentioned, um, The Social Entrepreneurs so are part of the TechPG's um, the first one in Australia. Um, in. we actually won the first one um, meeting up with them tomorrow with um, doing another one um, in, in Sydney. Um, and I just wondered if you could elaborate a bit more on what opportunities the private sector have got and where they shouldn't be involved as well. Uh, Jane, you mentioned before um, about how, you know, some cities in America um, are competing to have um, more refugees. And I'm just wondering why there's such a disparity between the attitude in Australia and the attitude in America um, towards these people? I might might hand that over, I think, um, first to Jane and then Jeff, if you have any additional comments. Thanks for those three (coughs) questions to the first one about climate change and should the refugee definition be expanded. Um, My answer to that might surprise you. I don't think it should be, but I'll give you my reasons for saying that. First of all, if we're talking specifically about the impacts of climate change on people's movement, we can never in any situation say climate change on its own causes someone to move. It's always interacting with other factors like um, environmental fragility of where they're living, um, their own uh, you know, socioeconomic situation, um, their age, their health, whether or not they're in a, um, a country that can provide resources, all, all sorts of things. It's always, it's been described to me as... Uh, sorry. It's been described to me by people in countries like Bangladesh and the Pacific Islands as being the straw that breaks the camel's back, so it's overlaid on top of existing vulnerabilities. Which makes it very hard to actually define in law if you say the following things cause, you know, people to move. Of course we could move move to a more nuanced approach in terms of um, drivers of movement, but then what else should we include? Should it be general impoverishment? Should it be um, you know, why climate change and not other kinds of disasters like earthquakes that aren't linked to climate change? So there are lots of different factors there that I think speak against um, changing definition, apart from, of course, the fact that states have no interest in doing so and they've made that very clear. The broader question, though, is if if one opens up the Refugee Convention for renegotiation, the likelihood would be we would see a far more diluted um, form of protection being offered. So the definition could be expanded, but it could also be contracted quite considerably. That's not to say, though, that we don't need states to be working towards what their responsibilities should be in this context. Um, It also speaks to the nature of movement. It's not necessarily always going to be flight. It may be anticipatory movement, and again, refugee law tends to be a much more reactive response once somebody's moved because something's about to happen or has already happened, as opposed to, in the future, this might be something that means I can't live in my home. Um, So I I just caution there on automatically jumping to that. Um, But perhaps in the future there may be some kind of international agreement. In terms of the role of the private sector and to the work you've done in particular, thank you very much for that. Look, I think the private sector can play all sorts of different roles. I mean, one that I think would be particularly powerful in this country is, is simply a leadership role in um, in recognising the contributions that refugees have made to particular companies' workforces over the year, the, over the years, um, in recognising the resourcefulness that many refugees have, um, there's a report that Jeff alluded to that was written for the Immigration Department several years ago by the late Graham Hugo, which documented over a thirty-year period the very important contributions that refugees have made, uh, including exceeding the educational levels of most Australians and migrant, uh, migrants who, who live here. Um, majority of billionaires come from a refugee background, all that kind of stuff. But aside from the kind of leadership and speaking up, I think there are um, obviously ways in which companies could provide jobs to refugees. There are a number that already do that and are very you know very keen to do more. Part of the problem in this country though has been um, the the lack of entitlement of asylum seekers to be able to take up those jobs. Um, around the world though, there's some very, very positive examples um, that have you know, very strong evidence of, of contributions that refugees have made. The other thing I've heard C- CEOs say is, you know, the day you give a refugee a job is the day they stop becoming a refugee. Now, of course, you know, it's, it's obviously a generalised sentiment, but I think it does speak to integration that that can bring sense of belonging to a community. And on the flip side, which then relates to your question, the impact it has on communities themselves. Because I think, again, to bring it back to the Australian context, most people have probably not met someone who's been a recent refugee arrival because we keep people away from communities by and large, whether it's detention, offshore, um, that's, that's how most people will, you know, think of refugees. It's not like we are saying, you're welcome, we're working alongside you, you're at university or at school together. That's the exception rather than the rule. Um, and I think that's what, you know, one of the examples that's given from the Welcoming America campaign is that it's not that Americans are just naturally more welcoming people. Um, in fact, they have shown how, I think, Nashville was one of the most hostile communities to immigrants and refugees. And yet, by becoming part of this program, over time, they then became one of the most welcoming cities. And the neighboring cities were watching as their economy grew, as people were raving about this and saying, well, we, we want a bit of that too. How do we get involved? So it set up this really nice sort of competition. Um, and again, that's part of how do you frame the messages. How do you, uh, if a simple thing. I mean, they say, we don't talk about, we should tolerate people. That, that sounds like, well, you know, tolerate if I have to, but rather we should welcome people. So that, you know, and I think in this country, we've probably got a long way to go uh, in, in relation to the messaging, but it, it is what you say, how you say it, how you frame it, that then can in turn shift people's perceptions and understandings.
1: Okay, uh, confession time. I've got, I've got a complete on this one. Um, I left academia in 1983 and only returned to it in 2015. And when I returned to it, one of the things I noticed is the intellectual atmosphere had changed very significantly. So when I left uh, university in, in, the, in the early 1980s, I came from an environment which was very ho- suspicious of and probably in most instances hostile to the private sector. And you know a lot of the work that we were doing at that time in my field of in African studies, you know, was about class struggle, about colonialism, about neo-colonialism, about multinational corporations and the horrible things that they do. When I came back to Oxford last year, I found a group of very bright young students who are really interested in the private sector, and I found, you know, a, bit of a kind of cognitive dissonance on this one. So, you know, I'm gradually coming around to the idea that that the private sector does have a role to play and when I hear. Very bright people like Jane talk about the private sector. I have to concede that there's something in it. <laughs> At the same time, I still think there are some questions, some basic questions we need to ask about private sector involvement. You know, for example, you know, why exactly do certain private sector corporations want to be involved in refugee and humanitarian work? What exactly do they have to offer that other stakeholders and other partners can't offer? And then, perhaps most importantly, what other kind of activities are they involved in? that might actually cause a shadow of their desire to become involved in refugee and humanitarian issues. So I'm not a complete convert yet, I'm kind of slowly coming around to it, but I think you know, there's still a role to be, if not suspicious, at least ask a few questions about the role of the private sector.
0: And I would just say, I, I think that you know, there's a role to play, it's not the role, but it's a role, and you're quite right, I mean, you know, you've got to look at, particularly when it comes to employment, one of the things that I've heard, CEO I referred to say was, to, and speaking to other CEOs, by the way, don't think that what I mean here is you get a cheap labour source. He said, actually, I have invested so much money and resources and care and time into ensuring that the, um, he had 30% of his workforce to refugees, but ensuring that the people had um, language, you know, and interpreters, had transport, had counsellors if they needed it, he said, you know, in the short term it costs me a lot of money. In the long term I have one of the most loyal groups of people working with me. And he said, and I, it's just enriched my life so much personally and that of the community in which these particular factories are located. Um, but but for sure, I mean, the last thing I would want to see is private sector involvement because it's, oh, this might be a, a way to get um, some, you know, cheap labour and not have to worry too much about it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, a very quick anecdote along those lines. When well, I was working I at mean, UNCL, so a major sportswear company approached the organisation with the idea of setting up a factory in Dadaab, which I mentioned earlier in my presentation, the largest refugee camp in the world, with at that time half a million Somalis, now more like 350,000. And when we kind of probed them a little bit on why they wanted to set up this uh, manufacturing facility in the middle of a refugee, uh, a refugee camp, basically they said it's going to be cheap labour and they're not going to complain. And I think, you know, that's the kind of situation and scenario that we have to be aware of. There are currently some discussions going on about providing employment for for Syrian refugees in Jordan in the private sector, especially economic zones. And again, I think we have to insist that uh, if refugees are gonna be employed by international corporations, then the question of labor standards and labor rights is absolutely central. Well, um, we might
0: need to draw our discussion to a close Um, unfortunately. Uh, It's been a really rich and wide-ranging discussion from uh, global compacts to small-town Nashville Um, and and, um, I would like to ask you to join with me in thanking our two speakers. must also go to Baker and Mackenzie for hosting us and particularly to Kate Gillingham and and also to Patricia Cam for your uh, great support in arranging tonight's event and Baker and Mackenzie have also very kindly um, provided us refreshments uh, which are being served at the back of the room here so please do stay and continue the discussion with us.
1: If anybody's got burning questions then sure we'd be happy to talk on an individual questions.
0: Absolutely, we will continue the discussion uh, over drinks. Thank you very much.